Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. And um, we've been studying through Isaiah as a church just for the last month or so, and there's just a lot of background and things like that. So I decided, you know what, let's press pause on that for one week, and let's focus our hearts and minds on baptism. Um, you know, we, I tend to make a lot of extended comments um, just offhand before someone is baptized, but I thought, well, why we haven't actually done a deeper dive on what is baptism and why is it important and so forth. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, baptism is one of the two ordinances that Christ has given to his church, the, the, uh, the second being the Lord's table. And I thought it would just be beneficial for us to, to think about what baptism is and why it's important. And uh, baptism, like the Lord's table, is a visible uh, sermon, but it doesn't really preach itself. Um, it needs explanation. It needs us to uh, uh, unpack it from, I wish I had understood half of what we're going to share with you this morning when I was baptized as a new Christian. And so we need to explain it to appreciate it and to value uh, the, the, um, the ordinance itself and its life uh, in the disciple-making mandate of the church. So this morning we're going to ask and answer six questions about baptism. Six questions about baptism, and my prayer is that out of this study this morning that you will have a fresh biblical perspective and a greater appreciation for baptism in the ongoing ministry of the local church. So we're going to get right into it this morning. The first question we want to ask and answer is this, what is baptism? What is baptism? And it's foundational because the answer to this question shapes how we answer the other questions. Um, what baptism is helps us understand, for example, who the proper recipients of baptism should be and when someone should be baptized and where someone should be baptized and how and why, those, uh, why baptism is important. And so I want to begin with an illustration or an analogy. I'm sure at some point, uh, many of you have traveled overseas or been outside of the country, and one of the most important things you need to take with you when you step out of the borders of the United States, if you're an American citizen, is um, your passport. You must have a passport. A passport is an item that you most definitely do not want to lose or misplace or have stolen uh, when you're traveling outside of your home country, because getting back into your home country will be significantly more difficult, so I've been told. If you're an American, your passport is the U.S. government's declaration and affirmation that you are indeed a citizen of this country with all the rights, all the privileges, and all the responsibilities that come with citizenship. Uh, without your passport, you cannot prove uh, that, nor can the customs officials verify at least definitively who you are and where you came from. You might be a U.S. citizen, all the, well, all the more, but you also might be a Canadian citizen, or you might be an Australian citizen or a citizen of the U.K., and, and therefore would not be entitled to all the privileges, rights, and, um, and, uh, and responsibilities of, a, of an American citizen. So, but the thing is, no one creates their own passport. You don't, you don't uh, manufacture that in your kitchen. No one, uh, you, you don't get one mailed to you by default just for being here in this country. Uh, my point is you have to come forward into the open and actually apply for a passport. Um, there's a part for you to play in that process, and there's a part for the government to play in that process. You have to submit supporting evidence that verifies you truly were born here, 
that, or that you've become a naturalized citizen, that you are, in fact, an American. You have to, you have to prove that and, and verify that. And the government then evaluates those proofs and those um, documents, and if everything looks legitimate, then they sign off on it and issue you an, an official passport with, um, and you, that you can present whenever you travel uh, from country to country. Well, baptism, I submit to you, is much functions much like a passport. Uh, but it doesn't verify that you're a citizen of, the Mer- of America or um, Canada or the UK, but rather that you are a citizen of heaven. On the one hand, you have to come forward publicly and present evidence that you're a citizen of heaven. You must publicly testify that indeed you've now placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of sins. And alongside that, baptism is the church's declaration and affirmation that you individually have been united to Christ by faith in the gospel and are indeed a citizen of heaven, that you're now one of his people with all the rights, all the privileges, and all the responsibilities of being a member of his church. So like a passport, there's a part for you to play and there's a, individually, and there's a part for the church to play. Baptism, then, is where individual faith becomes public. But it's, again, it's not, to, to extend this analogy, it's not enough for you to declare yourself to be a Christian or for a bunch of people around you to think that you're a Christian. Just like you're declaring yourself uh, kind of ex nihilo to be a U.S. citizen and a bunch of your friends thinking that you're a U.S. citizen, maybe they're traveling with you overseas, uh, that's not enough to get you past customs. <laughs> oh, no, he's an American, Yeah. You also need the declaration and affirmation of the church to whom Christ has given the keys of the kingdom. And uh, similar to how the State Department has a delegated authority under the Constitution of the United States to render judgment as to who is and who isn't a citizen of our country, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 in particular teach us that Christ has given any rightly constituted body of believers in the local church, a delegated authority to render judgment on his behalf as to who is and who isn't a kingdom citizen. And when the church declares the judgment of heaven based on the principles of his word, that judgment is authoritative. It accords in heaven as it does on earth. There are always then, when it comes to baptism, two parties involved. There, are, there is you individually as the repentant sinner coming forward to publicly testify, but the church also has a part to play as well. So to answer this question in summary, what is baptism? Uh, baptism is the church's declaration and the individual's public testimony that they have been united to Christ on the basis of faith, and it initiates that person into the fellowship of the local church, marking them off from the world. To kind of bring that all together, that's a big definition. Baptism is the church's declaration and the individual's public testimony that they have been united to Christ on the basis of faith, and that initiates that individual into the fellowship of the local church, marking them off from the world. In other words, in baptism, you step out of the world and into the church. You testify to it, and the church affirms it. So that kind of answers the first question is, what is a baptism? A second important question 
that we need to ask and answer this morning is this, who is the now, who are or who is the proper recipient of baptism to be? And for that second question, I want you to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 and verses 18 to 20. We know them well. If you've been in and around the church, this passage is known as the Great Commission. And in verse 18, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, and by extension to all of us, He came up to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, again, this is the Great Commission. It is our mission summarized by our Lord for the church. And our mission is to make disciples of the nations. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we go about this task? Well, it really is as simple as one, two, three, right? First, we preach the gospel. We, we, we go about this task of making disciples by going out and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. We go out preaching that, that Christ is reconciling sinners to himself by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that, um, that son of God who came down from heaven lived a sinless life. He, he died an atoning death, and he rose victorious from the grave on the third day as the scriptures testify. We preach that. We, we, we proclaim that unashamedly. And, and then people will receive that message, that reality, as God draws hearts to himself. And they testify to that by trusting in him as Christ, as Lord and Savior. So the first first part of the disciple-making mandate is to preach the gospel, to go out and to preach the gospel. But the very next thing in the disciple-making process, which the Lord lays out here, is baptizing those who've repented and believed into the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So baptism is of such significance that Jesus actually singles it out here as an essential link in the disciple-making process. The New Testament really knows nothing of an unbaptized disciple. To be a disciple assumes that you have been baptized. When Paul uh, writes to the churches in Galatia, for example, or when he writes to the church in Rome, Or when he writes to the Corinthian church, he assumes that they have all been baptized. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Or in Galatians 3 and verse 27, he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, Paul is taking for granted, he's assuming as he writes that, that everyone he is writing to and speaking to has been baptized. And the force of his argument is this, if you have done the first, that is, if you've been baptized into Christ, then the second reality is also true. The spiritual reality is also true, and now you need to live like it. So when he says that you have been baptized, uh, you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, he says, that's, I'm assuming that's the case. That means that you have clothed yourself with Christ and vice versa, that you have been 
baptized into Christ, you have been baptized, you are, you are immersed into his death as if it happened to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 13, Paul says, and he's addressing division in the church, and there was all of these factions that were forming around different apostles, and he says, he writes to them, has, he's asking a rhetorical question, has Christ been divided? Was Paul, uh, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? And then he asks this question, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, Paul is assuming the force of that argument is assuming that the Corinthian believers had, in fact, been baptized, but not in his name, but in the name of the triune God. So my point is this, whether it's the Great Commission or whether it's the example in the book of Acts or whether it's Paul's letters in the New Testament, those who've heard the message of the gospel, those who've repented and believed that Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of their sins, were those who have been baptized, so, who are the proper recipients of baptism? The simple answer to that question is every believer who is trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that would, of course, rule out um, the practice of infant baptism, because infants and younger children are too young to understand the gospel. They're too young to recognize their sinfulness and embrace Christ. Because an infant is unable to respond to the gospel with true understanding which is the first link in the disciple-making process, without that understanding, they are not to be baptized. And, of course, then the third link, so it's preach, baptize, the third link in the disciple-making process is to teach that new believer to observe everything that Christ has commanded. And so um, it is the systematic instruction in sound doctrine that brings forth the fruit of sound living. That is... That is the, um, the last link in this disciple-making process. So it's as simple as one, two, three. We preach first. Secondly, we baptize those who have repented and believed, and then we instruct them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So that answers the question of who should be, who is the proper recipient of baptism. Third, when should someone be baptized? We've answered the question, what is baptism, and who's the proper recipient? The question is, when should someone be baptized? Well, in other words, how quickly should the church move forward to baptize someone who's recently professed faith in Christ? Is it something that should happen, like, immediately? Is it something that should happen uh, after a probationary period? And if so, how long and, and how extensive should it be? As we look at the New Testament, what we see is that baptism falls fast on the heels of someone trusting Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. As you look at the the example of the New Testament, there's a consistent uh, pattern that emerges. When the gospel is preached, people receive that message and are baptized. Um, Example, Pentecost we know that section of, of, of the book of Acts well. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, as Peter's preaching, as he wraps up, the text records for us, so then those who had received his word, Peter's word about the gospel, were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. So in that moment, there was very little, if any, interval of time between when that person uh, believed on Christ and when that person then came forward in public testimony to that faith in baptism. 
when the gospel traveled out beyond the borders of the Jewish community in Jerusalem and Judea into, into the Gentile regions in Acts 10, it became obvious to Peter and to others that the same Holy Spirit that was, uh, had indwelt the Jewish believers had also indwelt the Gentile believers. And so uh, Peter goes and he, he comes upon this Gentile group, and as he sees the work of God and, and the work of the Holy Spirit upon them, he says in Acts 10, verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, we see a very short gap of time between trusting Christ and those new believers being baptized. In Acts chapter 16, when the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel in chapter 16 and verse 14, Paul's preaching, it says she and her household were baptized when they received that message of the gospel. Later on in chapter 16, Paul is in jail. Paul and Silas are in jail, and this miraculous um, earthquake happens, and they uh, cry out in fear and and they explain the gospel to them, and, and they received the, the jailer and his family received that message. It says the jailer took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. So again, the pattern seems to be that belief upon Christ and baptism go hand in hand. Um, there's, there isn't to be a long period of time between putting your faith in Christ and that faith going public in baptism. So then, so when should a person be baptized? Well, I guess the simple answer is soon, <laughs> soon after they have truly received Christ. But that doesn't have to be immediately. We don't need to drag them out, uh, out of the chair right into the, the waters of baptism. Uh, since baptism is also the church's declaration and affirmation, that this individual has been united to Christ and to his people, and we're welcoming them into the fellowship of the church, then wisdom and prudence would call us as leaders to make sure at least that that new convert truly understands what baptism and commitment to Christ entail. So um, we don't want to hastily draw a line between the world and the church where it really doesn't exist. We want to be careful so the church should make, uh, but that said, the church should take every profession of faith seriously. Um, and, but depending on the situation, the age, and the context, that the leaders should make sure that that professing believer understands at the most basic level what confessing Christ entails. And that is, it entails submission to the lordship of Christ, and it entails commitment to his body, the church. So, that helps us kind of answer the question, is when sh someone should be baptized? Fourth, how should someone be baptized? How should someone be baptized? Well, there's kind of three things I want to draw out of this, main, this to answer this question. First is uh, by immersion. By immersion. The, the Greek verb to baptize means to dip or to plunge into water. Even in a metaphorical sense, it means to immerse into something entirely. And when you look at the Gospels and you look at the history of the early church in Acts, large bodies of water were the only places where baptisms were being carried out. Uh, in John chapter 3, in verse 23, 
uh, John records for us that John the Baptist was baptizing, it says, near Anon, near Salim. Why was he doing this? Why would he do that there in a land that is mostly desert? Well, it says, the text tells us, because there was much water there. <laughs> when the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip were in the wilderness, and the eunuch heard and believed the gospel, he specifically stopped the caravan because in God's providence, they rolled up on a large body of water. And he said to Philip, hey, look, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? And he says, well, you can. And then that text says that he and Philip went down into the water he baptized him, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. So, again, if baptism could be performed by, for example, sprinkling or pouring a cup of water over someone's head, it doesn't seem to make any sense that every instance of baptism recorded in the Scriptures show people consistently traveling to or stopping where there was large bodies of water in order to be baptized. I mean, wouldn't that make sense in a land where there's no water that you would use the least amount of water possible if that was permissible under God's design? In Romans 6, verses 1 to 4, and again in Colossians 2, 11 to 13, Paul makes clear that the act of baptism symbolizes, that the act itself symbolizes the individual believer's participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on their behalf. So how we baptized is tightly bound up in what baptism signifies, making those invisible spiritual realities tangible to the world. And so baptism by immersion in water is the mode of baptism that we see sanctioned by the scriptures, and it testifies to our spiritual union with Christ on the basis of faith. So, so if we're going to answer this question, how, it must be by immersion. Secondly, it must be by an authorized representative of the church. Baptism should be administered by an authorized representative of the church. Because we said in the beginning, if baptism is a whole church's affirmation that um, an individual has trusted Christ, then it would make logical sense that the baptizer, the other party in that, be a an individual that acts on behalf of the church. So that, in most cases, is going to be an elder or a deacon. When someone baptizes a new believer, they don't do so as, as on their own individual authority. They're doing it on behalf of the church's authority, as a representative of the church. And I know that... Um, that's not always the case. I know some churches, for example, will let a parent baptize their child in the church. Uh, or they might allow someone who has a, a special relationship to that individual, someone that's a friend or, or some, a missionary or, or, um, or something like that, to baptize them, uh, even though they're not a part of that church. But I think um, that, that sends mixed signals. When the church allows a parent or a friend to baptize a new believer, people might walk away thinking mistakenly that baptism is an ordinance of the family or that baptism is an ordinance uh, that can, a ritual that can be legitimately performed amongst any two individual Christians, which, of course, is not the case. And so baptism, along with the Lord's table, belong to the church. It belongs to the church. It's an ordinance given to the church by the head of the church, and as such, really should be carried out by a leader in the church acting on the church's 
behalf. So, again, baptism is by immersion. It should be a by and authorized representative of the church. And lastly, it is in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To be baptized in the name of someone, we see this in the baptism of John, baptism of Christ, the Great Commission. To be baptized in the name of someone is to become a disciple of that person. That's what that entails. That's what that's talking about. So those who were baptized by John, for example, in the beginning of the Gospels, they're baptized by John to show that they are becoming a disciple of John and his message. Later on in Acts, when some of those same disciples of John put their faith in Christ after his death and resurrection, they were baptized again. Acts 19, signifying that they had now become disciples of Christ. And so as we came, uh, come back to our, our um, text in Matthew 28, as, as we make disciples of the nations, we're to baptize them in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, signifying that this individual has become a disciple of the one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. So this is how we are to baptize. It is by immersion, by an authorized, ideally by an authorized representative of the church, and it must be in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A fifth question we must consider is where should someone be baptized? Where should someone be baptized? Again, understanding what baptism is and what it signifies, that informs the Bible's answer to this question. And since baptism is the whole church's declaration and certification, this individual has trusted Christ, welcoming them into their midst, then really the only fitting and proper location for baptism to happen is when the whole church is gathered. Now, does that mean that baptism must be conducted in a church building? And the answer is, of course not. Because a church is not a building, right? The church is not a building. It's, a, it's a, an assembly of God's new covenant people. And so wherever the church gathers, that could be in a building. It could be a small church that meets in a home, but also could be a church that's renting out a cafeteria or a, an auditorium. Or it could be the church gathered by a beach or by a river or near a lake. Wherever that church chooses to gather, that's the church in that place. So in saying that baptism is reserved for the whole church gathering, what we're saying is that wherever the church chooses to come together, even if that's on a temporary basis for one day, that's an appropriate place where baptism can take place. So that would not be, for example, at a youth camp where you have kids from several or many different churches gathered together, or just where you're at the beach with several of your Christian friends. Hey, you want to be baptized? Yeah. No. Or when your campus Bible study, which is just a subset of a larger church, hosts a retreat by a lake in the mountains. Like, those are not the appropriate places. Why? Because in those contexts, the whole church is not gathered together. Beyond that, baptism is a public profession of your faith in Christ, and arguably the first and most important public gathering you can make that profession in front of is his church. So we've always, always made baptism an extension of the church's worship services over the years. Sometimes we've met at pools. We didn't always have this beautiful contraption here. 
We didn't always, we didn't, we haven't even had the space for more than a year. But we would meet at a pool, but we met as the church. We, sometimes we met in other churches' buildings, but we met as our church. Uh, when I was in Florida, grew up in Florida, I was at a church. We baptized people in the Gulf of Mexico at the beach, but we did it as a church gathered on the shore. Why, why does it matter? Well, where the church practices baptism is either going to illuminate or obscure what baptism is and what it signifies. When the whole church gathers to witness a baptism, I think it shines a light on and elevates the reality that the whole church is affirming God's gracious work in that individual's heart and life, drawing them to repentance and faith. But when only a subset of the church, or even worse, no church at all practices baptism, I think it obscures and diminishes the second, you know, the second role that the God has given to the church to publicly and heartily affirm an individual believer's testimony of faith. So again, if you're baptized in one of those contexts, I'm not here to uh, throw your baptism into doubt. I'm just saying that ideally, when a church practices baptism, where we do that is very important. The sixth, then, and final question is this. Why is baptism important? I originally had this earlier in my message, and I moved it to the end, because I think it's good to drill down as to the so what. Why does this matter? Why is baptism important? A couple of things. First, baptism is where individual faith and allegiance to Christ becomes public. We said this earlier, but it bears repeating. Uh, baptism is where your individual faith in and allegiance to Christ goes public. There are no secret closet Christians, at least not as the scripture portrays it. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 26. So we have to understand that there are no secret or closet Christian. If you are a genuine, born-again citizen of heaven, Jesus said that you are one who will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, along with believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. So, so baptism is where new believers confess with their mouth what their heart now trusts in, namely Jesus and his finished work upon the cross. Second, Baptism is important because it demonstrates the obedience of a transformed heart. Baptism is is significant because it demonstrates the obedience of a transformed heart. To be a disciple of Christ means to obey him. It's to follow him. And one of the very first commands a new believer is called upon to follow is this command to be baptized in his name. And so when Peter's preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and, and he is just laying out the gospel, just burning them up with the truth. The, their, their hearts are so convicted. In Acts chapter 2, they cry out, what? They say to him, what must we do to be saved? And his answer is fitting. He says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. As we pointed out earlier, baptism is so tightly connected to this disciple-making process that, that Peter singles it out, and, and, and from there, 
He says, new believers are to be taught to observe all that Christ commands. Again, it's not that baptism itself saves you. If you put your faith in Christ and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that is a work of grace that has happened. And if you die on the way to church and you're not able to get baptized, you will be with the Lord forever in heaven. That's not what we're saying. But it is, if you have that opportunity, then, then that is what a heart of faith will do. It will take that command and it will obey that. A willing obedience to be baptized then gives immediate evidence of the Spirit's gracious work that it has removed that heart of stone and replaced that heart of stone with a heart of flesh that beats for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we have to to understand that baptism is important because it, it gives testimony to a transformed heart. Third, baptism is important because it draws a circle around the church, marking it off from the world. Baptism is significant because it draws a circle around the church and it marks it off from the world. Baptism is the church's affirmation and the individual's public testimony that they have been united to Christ on the basis of faith. It's what marks them off from being a citizen of the world and declaring them to be a citizen of heaven. And so in that way, like we said earlier, it's like a passport. It allows you to move to other embassies of Christ's kingdom, other local churches, and to present proof that you're indeed a citizen of heaven. That's why we require baptism in the church, our church, for membership. Someone has got to have given testimony to your trust in the Lord at some point in your Christian life. So baptism marks off the world, uh, the church, excuse me, from the world. Fourthly, baptism is important because it gives outward expression to the inward spiritual reality of regeneration. The very act of baptism itself, which we'll see here in just a moment, pictures the inward spiritual transformation that faith in Christ has already enacted. Baptism, the act itself of plunging the person beneath the water and bringing them back up out of the water, portrays the believer's union with Christ in our Lord's death and in his burial and his resurrection. It it demonstrates tangibly the washing of regeneration by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. It is a visible sermon that proclaims the mighty work of the triune God in saving the sinner and consequently is a faith builder. It bolsters faith, not just the faith of the person who comes forward to give testimony to God's gracious work in their life, but it also gives testimony and strength to the faith of the gathered church who bear witness to that. And so, I would just leave you with a final appeal. If you're not baptized, do it. <laughs> and if you're a believer in Christ and you haven't been baptized since that transformation has taken place, you need to be. You need to be. And it's not recommended, it's commanded. It's commanded. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Secondly, if not, if you are, uh, if, moreover, if you've been baptized and that baptism hasn't followed the biblical pattern by immersion, after repentance and belief in the gospel, in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you're 
Baptism, honestly, is no baptism at all. And therefore, you need to obey the Lord's instruction. And so if you were baptized by sprinkling or pouring as an infant, or if you were not a believer when you did, uh, when you were baptized by immersion but, and came to Christ at some point later, or if you were baptized in a church that was not a church, a cult of something like that, you need to be baptized in accordance with the pattern laid out in his word. I believe the New Testament argues convincingly that the pattern and manner in which baptism is to be carried out is essential, even if that has been many, many years since you've come to Christ. And lastly, I guess my final appeal is if you're not a Christian, if you haven't come all the way to Christ, if you've been living for yourself and turning your back on the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, you need to turn to him. You need to receive his forgiveness and you need to follow him before the opportunity slips away. You're not guaranteed another day. You're not guaranteed another week or another year. There is no time like the present. There is no day like today to repent and trust Christ. And so I leave you with Peter's words. Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. If that's you this morning, do not leave here without talking to someone about the hope that we have within us. We would love to share what the word of God says about you, your heart, forgiveness of sins, the glory of Christ, and what discipleship in Christ entails. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the simple and straightforward answers that you've given to us in your word on this topic. And we thank you that you've given us not only the Lord's table, but the, this ordinance of baptism as a way for the church to uh, affirm and for the individual to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to um, bear witness to that today. And I ask, Lord, that you would work in hearts. Perhaps some here among us are struggling to understand what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to follow you? What does it mean to have a clear conscience and their hope of, uh, of their sins washed away? What, what does that look like? Lord, may not one person uh, miss this opportunity to talk um, to someone, uh, myself or son or one of our other uh, men in our church who would love to just be able to open up the word of God and share the hope of Christ. Lord, um, you said as many as uh, call upon you, you will no, in no way cast out. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we, hear now, we have now to hear this testimony of your grace in Jonathan's life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.